In September 2000, eight-year-old Zachary Bernhardt disappeared from his home in Clearwater, Florida. Though police never named a suspect in his disappearance, the media narrowed in on Zachary's mother. For over 19 years, she has lived under a cloud of suspicion. But is it justified? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Hello from the city of the new Super Bowl champions, the Chiefs. This has been quite the week for us here in Kansas City. I'm sorry to anyone out there in San Francisco, but let me tell you, 50 years in the making, it was quite a week. Let me go ahead and update you guys on the Dulos case before I jump into anything else. I did not include an update in last week's episode, even though there was one. It's only because of the timing issues between when I record, when things happen, that kind of thing. But I do want to update you. So on the last update on the Dulos case, Fotis was clinging to life. He did pass away two days after his apparent suicide attempt. His family wants to clear his name. They believe the accusations that he had anything to do with his estranged wife's disappearance are false, and they are what drove him to take his own life. He did leave a note that has been released to the media. I posted it in the Facebook group True Crime Talk. That's where I tend to hang out on social media. It's actually the old Insight group that we just turned into a general true crime discussion group. Feel free to join it. Again, it's called True Crime Talk. I posted the note in there. In the note, he denies his involvement. The note also said that his attorney, Norm Pattis, has evidence that sufficiently explains the bags that he and Michelle were seen throwing away in Hartford. Those were the bags with items containing Jennifer's blood and DNA. However, there is still a gag order in place, so Pattis has not been allowed to make that information public. Whenever the Chirconis and Mawini cases do go to trial, I will have a full update episode. Fotis's death does not mean their trials won't go forward, but it does mean they've both lost a bargaining chip. They can no longer offer to testify against him for a deal. I'll keep you posted on any major developments, but let's get on to tonight's case. This is a missing child case. I know those can be hard. If you don't like kid cases, I recommend tapping out now. There will be some discussion of a pedophile who lived in the area, so that's your warning if this content is not for you. We're talking about the disappearance of eight-year-old Zachary Bernhardt. Zachary had a rather unstable living situation from almost literally birth. When his mother, Leah Hackett, was 20, she was pregnant and living with her boyfriend. On December 18, 1991, Leah was a month shy of her 21st birthday when Zachary was born. Leah opted not to give him her last name or that of her boyfriend. She instead gave him her mother's last name, Bernhardt. Leah's boyfriend took a DNA test to establish paternity shortly after Zach's birth. The test came back that he was not the father, and Leah moved out of the apartment they shared pretty much right after this since they split up. Though Leah knew who Zachary's father was, she never contacted him about his son's birth, and she decided she was going to raise Zachary by herself, but with her family's help. She had older siblings who also had children. Her mother, Carol, was very involved in Zachary's life. He spent a lot of time with these aunts and uncles and cousins and grandma, and they all helped to raise him. At times, he even lived with them. In 1994, when Zachary was three, 23-year-old Leah moved from Florida to Michigan to be with her new boyfriend, Robert. That same year, Leah gave birth to a daughter with Robert, and it is not clear if Zachary had moved to Michigan with her 
or if he was still in Florida living with relatives. That's unclear. The relationship broke down within a couple of years, and in 1996, a judge gave Leah permission to return to Florida with their daughter, even though Robert had at some point filed for custody. In June of that same year, Robert went to Florida. He wanted to go visit his daughter. Zachary was four at the time, and the baby was two. On a Saturday night, while Robert was in Florida, Leah asked him if he would babysit Zachary as well as visit with his daughter so that she could go out. He said, sure, no problem, he'd babysit. And then he didn't hear from her for two days. Robert tried to reach her. He was paging her off and on. When he didn't hear from her all day on Sunday and still had Zachary, he reached out to her sister And on Sunday night, they both reported Leah missing to the police. Leah eventually showed up on Monday. Robert was concerned that Leah felt it was okay to just disappear and not check on her kids to the point that a missing persons report was filed on her. Now, he had no rights to Zachary. Zachary was not his kid, but he did have rights to his daughter. He took her back to Michigan and was awarded custody. Later that same year, Leah was living with a man named Matt, while Zachary was living with one of Leah's sisters, Billy Joe, at this point. Matt painted Leah as a partier who didn't seem that concerned about her son. In November of 1996, the two broke up, though Leah stayed at the apartment for a few more days. When Matt found out that she had gone to another guy's house, he yelled at her to get out, and he shoved her. Leah called the police, and Matt was eventually given a year's probation after he pleaded out on a misdemeanor battery charge. From my understanding, Zachary was not there and did not witness this. Leah's family, though, thought she was still living at that apartment, So in May 1997, her sister Billy Jo went by to see her because she hadn't heard from her for several days, up to maybe a couple weeks. And when she got there, Leah was not there. Billy Jo checked with her work, and Leah hadn't been in for two weeks. She called in the excuse that her mother had died. It was a clear lie, and Billy Jo was worried when she called the police to report Leah missing, she told them that she had threatened suicide in the past. A few days later, the missing persons report was closed out when Leah made contact. Leah then at some point took custody of Zachary back, and when he was six, she moved into a somewhat rundown apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida. The owner of the complex, Richard Martinez, hired her on as the manager of the complex in June 1998. This job was in exchange for rent and utilities being paid. Three months into this job, Martinez fired Leah for reasons unknown. The two ended up having an argument about the firing and Martinez broke into her apartment while she and Zach were there. He said he was there to get the complex keys back from her. But in this break-in, trying to get the keys, he ended up ripping her shirt, meaning he had his hands on her at some point. Leah was able to get a restraining order against this man, but she had no way to pay the rent without the job, so she was evicted. Leah is now 27 years old. She and Zachary moved in with a friend. And then the friend eventually tried to kick Leah out for not paying rent. But in the end, the roommate decided to just leave, let Leah have the apartment. Leah asked the landlord if she could stay on in the apartment, even though the lease had been in her friend's name. The landlord agreed, but only because Leah told him. She was a single mom with cancer. Cancer she did not have. She was using this to get sympathy. While I generally have no patience 
for people who are making up a cancer diagnosis for sympathy, Leah was about to be homeless with a six-year-old. She may have gotten desperate, wanting to avoid admitting to her family that she couldn't keep it together. Anyway, the landlord let Leah stay, but evicted her in April 1999 when she had racked up over a grand in back rent. This is Florida, 1999. So I'm going to guess this was probably two or three months that she owed by the time she left. It was at some point after this that Leah moved Zach to Clearwater, Florida, and they moved into the Savannah Trace Apartments. Okay, so what are we getting at here? Why am I going through all of this? Clearly, Leah is a young mom. She's not ready for the responsibility of a child. She can't keep a job. She can't keep an apartment. Maybe she's a partier. So now let's talk about the other side of things. Leah's nieces thought of her as the cool aunt because they'd go over there and they'd watch scary movies and drink soda. Not behind her back or while she was off partying or doing something else. While she was on the couch, laughing and chatting and spending time with them, making them feel important and a little grown up. A neighbor at the Savannah Trace Apartments who talked to the media about Leah and Zach, she brought up discipline and mentioned that Leah didn't let Zachary get away with whining and tantruming. She wasn't just loose with the rules and all fun and games all the time. She also had boundaries. She was actively raising and guiding her son. Zachary was full of life. He was a happy boy who, from what everyone on the outside could see, was securely attached to his mother. The disappeared episode on this case had me almost in tears over this home movie footage of the sweet little boy with his mom at his side. Leah's mother and sister were in the disappeared episode, and they said Zachary and Leah were very, very close. Teachers at Zachary's school all adored him and knew Leah very well. She kept an eye on his grades. She went to parent-teacher conferences. She went to class parties. She helped organize the school's carnival. Every one of them had the impression that Leah was an attentive and present mother. So which is she? Is Leah Hackett Casey Anthony or is she June Cleaver? And I'm wondering if it's so hard to reconcile that she was both of these people. Moms who love their kids deal with housing instability. Leah had 11 residences in 14 years, often being evicted or kicked out. But in the year 2000, the time frame we're talking about, 10 million households were severely cost burdened. She was one of 10 million. Leah did disappear to go drinking, but not one person has said it was when Zachary was left home alone. Not one. Okay, it is immature and inconsiderate to have left him with her daughter's father for two days or to leave him with her sister and not make contact. It was irresponsible to lie to her job to go off the grid for two weeks. But as far as has been reported, Zachary was always with someone else when Leah did this. She never just abandoned him. He was always somewhere safe. And I'm sure her family wanted to shake her and tell her to get it together. But I think they saw the bigger picture. Her sister was worried about Leah being suicidal, so there may have been mental health issues at play. But eventually, Leah started getting it together in her late 20s. She got an overnight job at a telemarketing place. She was making a steady paycheck thanks to the third shift pay differential, and her family was excited for her. She had a neighbor who did not mind watching Zachary while he slept, while she was at work, and things looked like they were coming together for Leah after a rocky start to adulthood. She and Zach fell into a routine. She would have dinner with him and then leave for work. He'd go to bed and then go to school all day. Leah would sleep while he was at school and be ready for him when he got home. And even with the overnight shift, this is when she's at the school helping and meeting with teachers as needed. For the year before Zachary's disappearance, Leah had both this telemarketing job and the apartment at the Savannah Trace Complex. But on September 5th, 2000, 
eviction proceedings were filed against Leah by the apartment complex. The notice was sent out on September 6th. Based on the Pinellas County court records, she was served with the notice by September 12th, but we don't know which date it is exactly. It's not clear either how far behind she was. She may have just been having a rough month or two. It had just been the summer. Anyone out there who's paid for summer daycare can tell you it can get a little rocky. I don't know if that's her situation, but being a working mom, that's exactly where my brain went. Anyway, whether Leah was served or not, she would have known the eviction proceedings were happening. Based on the Florida laws, the landlord would have had to have given her a warning before filing in court. So that brings us to September 10th, 2000. It was a Sunday, and 29-year-old Leah had the night off from work. Eight-year-old Zachary played outside with friends during the day, and he was seen by a number of kids and neighbors. No one saw Leah outside, but that's probably because she was sleeping. Working overnights, Leah tried to keep her sleep schedule pretty standard, even on her days off. It really helped with the adjustment between days off and work days, and this is common for people who work late or do overnight shifts. Even if you work a nine-to-five, it's pretty well established it's best to stick to the same sleep hours, more or less, even on the weekends. So according to Leah, that evening, she and Zach ate dinner together and then settled in for a night of movie watching. Then around 11 p.m., Zachary started dozing off on the couch, so Leah carried him up to her bedroom to sleep. He had asked to sleep with her that night, which is not surprising. She usually wasn't home overnight. It was a special treat. He's an eight-year-old. Of course he wanted to sleep in her bed. After Zach went to bed, Leah stayed up watching TV for a little bit longer. Then she got on her laptop to socialize in some chat rooms. And around 1 a.m., she took the trash out. She drove it over to the apartment complex's dumpsters. This chore would have only taken a couple of minutes. Leah got back to the apartment and spent a couple more hours doing whatever around the apartment and she was getting a little restless. She wasn't tired enough to go to sleep, so she decided to go for a walk around the complex to see if that would help her wind down a bit. She went up to the bedroom first, so this is around 4 a.m., and she checked on Zach to make sure he was still asleep before she left. She didn't take anything with her, no purse, no keys, nothing. So she left the front door unlocked so she could get back in. It was a warm night, and as Leah was walking, she got the impulse to jump into the pool. This was an odd impulse for her because she later said she didn't actually like swimming all that much. Leah said she jumped in, she swam to the other side, and then she headed back to her apartment. When she walked in, she was really cold because the AC was turned down so low, and she was soaking wet. So she decided to take a warm shower before settling into bed. Now, here's a little gap in my information. The disappeared episode made it seem like she took the shower in the master bathroom, which she would have had to go past where Zach was sleeping to get to the bathroom. And maybe she did. Maybe she walked through that room. For my husband and I, if we need to take a shower and we have someone sleeping in our bedroom, we don't want to wake them up, so we tend to use a different shower. And the only reason this matters is because people find it suspicious that Leah walked through the master bedroom where Zach was supposedly sleeping and didn't notice he was missing as she walked through. My explanation for this is maybe she used another bathroom, but regardless, she didn't notice. She just got in the shower. When she walked into her room after her shower, that's when she noticed the bed was empty. And her first thought was that Zach had fallen out of the bed into that space between the bed and the far wall. 
So she walked over there and looked, and he wasn't there on the floor. So then she checked his room and the couch, thinking maybe he just walked off somewhere else to sleep. She checked the closets. She checked everywhere in the apartment. He wasn't there. She was starting to panic, but her first thought was, he may have gone to the neighbor's house, the neighbor who usually watched him. If he had woken up while she was out walking, he got scared or confused, she wasn't there, he would have gone to the babysitter's apartment. She banged on their doors and windows, and it took a minute to rouse them, because at this point, it's 4.30 in the morning or later. They were obviously asleep. When they made it to the door, Leah told them she couldn't find Zachary, but they had not seen him. So here's our timeline. Leah said she was only gone about 15 minutes total on this walk, from around 4 a.m. to around 4.15. She was then in the shower for another 10 to 15 minutes. So this gives us about a half-hour window, but if Zach had wandered out the front door looking for her, it probably would have been in those first 15 minutes while she was not there. Because otherwise, he would have woken up, he would have heard the shower, and known where his mom was. So this 15-minute window is when Leah believes Zach left the apartment. At 4.47 a.m., Leah called 911. She's on the phone, panicked, but she's clear. She told the dispatcher that the door was unlocked while Zach was home alone. The police responded quickly and searched the apartment. You'd be surprised how many kids, particularly young ones, are found curled up in the back of a closet sleeping. But that was not the case here. They couldn't find Zachary anywhere. While questioning Leah at her apartment, a search began starting in the complex and then moving outwards from there. There was an early hope that Zachary had just woken up while his mother was gone and went out looking for her. He had just wandered too far. He was lost, but nearby. Meanwhile, Leah called her sister Bobby Jo to tell her that Zachary was missing. Bobby Jo and Leah's mother Carol hopped in the car and headed to the apartment. They told the producers of Disappeared that when they pulled up and saw the crime scene tape, they thought Zach had been found murdered. But when they got to Leah, she told them that he was still missing, and then she broke down in sobs and pretty much just collapsed. The crime scene tape did not mean they found Zach dead, but it did mean they were treating this as a crime scene from the start, which is important. They took fingerprints, DNA swabs, photographs, and a few bags of what may be evidence out of the apartment before family and friends and neighbors started stomping through. There was still an issue here because investigators weren't sure what they're looking for. They weren't sure what they were even looking at because the apartment looked normal. When there is a footprint on a kicked-in door or blood spatter, they know what to swab, what to photograph, what prints to lift. But here they are, they're forensically processing a perfectly normal home. And as the police were searching the apartment, the apartment complex, and starting their grid search outside of the complex, the media started showing up at the scene. The police wanted to bring Leah to the station to answer more questions, but they were rightfully concerned about the optics of putting the mother of the missing child into a police car. So instead, they had Bobby Joe drive Leah to the station while their mother, Carol, stayed at the apartment. She wanted to be there in case Zachary came back or if there was news of what the searchers found. She wanted to be right there. At the station, Leah was walked through her timeline over and over again. They were looking for any little details that she may have overlooked when she gave her panicked first or second rundown of what happened. And as always, they're also looking for holes or gaps or inconsistencies in her story. I don't think they bought her I was only gone for 15 minutes story. Because from what I've seen, the police are always putting the timeline at she left between 3 and 4 a.m., not she left around 4 a.m., which is what she said. 
Even so, Leah seemed forthcoming. She answered all of their questions. She went over the timeline, and she repeated her story consistently again and again. And her demeanor wasn't out of line with what the investigators had seen before in similar situations. She would swing from being upset, and then she'd give a little quip that almost seemed inappropriately lighthearted. But that's very normal in moments of incredible stress like this. Our brains have to bring us back at some point. It's why authors put in moments of humor in really dark scenes. It's why we laugh at funerals. Our brains are coping. This was all in line with what they would expect, except this 15-minute window of an eight-year-old going missing from his home, that wasn't working for them. But there was something else the police needed to know from Leah, looking at this as a possible abduction. They needed to know about Zachary's father. So let's talk kidnapping statistics. Only 24% of child abductions are committed by a stranger. 27% are acquaintances of the victims. 49% are family kidnappings. The majority of the family kidnappings do involve a parent. Sometimes they involve a grandparent, but most are the non-custodial parents. For stranger kidnappings, they almost always happen in outdoor locations. There are exceptions to this, obviously. I just covered the Brianna Dennison case a month ago. That was a stranger abduction from inside a home. But if a child is taken from their home, it's usually a family member or at least an acquaintance like we saw in the case of Elizabeth Smart. She was taken by a man who had done handyman odd jobs at her house. So police want to know, is this a custodial issue? Statistics say that's the most likely outcome. Leah was honest about it. Zach's father had never been in the picture, and she hadn't seen him since before his birth, but she gave them his name and where she last knew he lived. The police did track him down, and he didn't even know he was Zachary's father. He was out of the state at the time Zach went missing, his alibi checked out, and he was crossed off the list. But Leah was not crossed off the list. That part about her story, the 15-minute timeline, just didn't make sense. What also didn't make sense is why did she go swimming at 4 a.m.? when she didn't even really like swimming. She didn't have a bathing suit or a towel with her. None of this was sitting right with investigators. Back at the complex, other officers were interviewing witnesses as the searchers were canvassing a two-mile radius from the complex. Every nearby police department loaned what they could to do the search, officers' boats, helicopters, everything. This was a massive search. They brought in search dogs who could not catch Zachary's scent anywhere beyond the apartment. It didn't even lead them out to the parking lot. The neighbor's statements are important here, but it was very early in the morning, so most people were asleep. There weren't a lot of witnesses, but there were two. One neighbor went out to smoke at 3 a.m. and saw Leah's car pull into the complex. Then at 3.45, Another neighbor went outside to say goodbye to her boyfriend, and as he left, she noticed that Leah's car was not parked in the usual spot. Now, there are no cameras to confirm any of this. According to Leah, she only drove away at 1 a.m. to throw her trash in the dumpster, and she wouldn't have been gone that long. But did she go somewhere farther away and not want to tell investigators, and she came back at three when her neighbor saw her pull in? Or does her neighbor have the time wrong? Did they see her closer to 1 a.m. when she took the trash? Or does she have the time wrong, and she went out later than she thought? I mean, it could go either way. And the other neighbor saw the car was gone at 3.45. So if both neighbors are correct, Leah arrived home around 3 stayed for less than 45 minutes, and then left again. Now, time is wibbly-wobbly in people's memories. We know that. But the suspicion here is that Leah was involved in whatever happened to Zachary 
And this going back and forth from the complex was her moving him away from the apartment. Now, the more benign explanation is that Leah lied to police about why, where, and how long she left the apartment. Maybe she did leave for a couple of hours, she came back to check on Zachary, and then went back out. People minimize these things. How often have we heard people say that they left their kid in the car for five minutes to run into the store, but then the target surveillance cameras shows they were actually in there for 45 minutes? People want to minimize for themselves and for others their culpability in situations like this. But as far as has been made public, the police have not had anyone come forward to say they saw Leah anywhere that night. If the police do have this evidence, they just haven't made it public. But a lot of people were willing to talk to the media in the aftermath of this. A lot of these people were willing to trash Leah in the media. And I've not found one report where someone said they saw her out that night. Now, as for the part of jumping in the pool, that is also an odd part of the story. It is being spun into being a cover for why she took a shower and why her clothes were wet. If she called the police and she was dripping wet, it would be alarming if there wasn't a reason for it. So if we decide she was covering the evidence of a crime by taking the shower, washing her clothes, my next question is what evidence? Her car and apartment were forensically searched. Based on the photographs made public, no one scrubbed this apartment. I'm not saying it was dirty or filthy. It was just the normal amount of lived in. There were no super clean parts of the floor that I could see, like someone poured bleach over it. All of the beds had the bedding on them, and it didn't look like fresh, crisp sheets. So what would she have on her from a murder that didn't show up anywhere else in the apartment? So now let's say the crime happened outside of the apartment. What got on her enough that she needed to shower, but it didn't transfer to her car at all? And the other thing is, if Leah was involved, why did she have to call the police stripping wet at all? If she had some involvement, she could have just waited. She could have called at 6 or 7 a.m. saying that she just woke up and Zachary was missing. But she didn't do that. She called at 4.47 after her shower. Now, an alternative is that she wasn't hiding evidence of committing a crime, but evidence of where she really was. Maybe she smelled like smoke, cigarette or otherwise. Maybe she was at a bar and she was trying to get that smell off of her so the police wouldn't know that she left him for so long. It would explain the shower. It would also explain why she didn't wait to call the police to report Zachary missing. She didn't want there to be a delay because he was genuinely missing and she was genuinely panicked. And of course, the third explanation for the shower is that Leah was telling the truth. The police don't think that's accurate. They don't believe she's told the whole truth. They've not named her as a suspect, but they have said they think she knows more than she's saying, and they have thought so from pretty early on. On September 13th, Zachary's been missing for two days. The police, the media, and the general public are side-eyeing Leah, and the police decide to have her make a public statement. In front of the cameras, she says that Zachary was loved, she wanted him to come home, and she begged people to keep searching. So watching this press conference doesn't leave you with the impression that she's acting more or less upset than someone in that situation would. Just like with the police interrogations, Leah's demeanor was being watched very closely. There were no massive tells with how she gave this statement. Though, of course, there are people who are coming into this with their own opinion, their opinion she's innocent, their opinion that she's guilty, and they view it through that lens. But watching it as someone who had not made up my mind one way or the other, it looked like a press conference. It looked like what you would expect. Now, the searches continued. A bunch of Zach's cousins who were too young to participate in the search papered the city with missing posters. 
But as far as has been made public, nothing of evidentiary value was found, and at least nothing that led to answers about where Zachary is had been found. Eventually, police had Leah do a full walkthrough of the apartment, like a reenactment of the entire night, while they recorded it. And again, she gave the same story she had been giving all along. Within a few months of Zachary going missing, Leah moved out of the apartment, and a lot is being made out of this, because we hear other missing child cases where the parents refuse to move away from their house or change their phone number for decades in the event their child tries to make contact. But we have to remember, Leah was already being evicted. Even if family helped her out for a while, even if the landlord was super forgiving under these circumstances, she couldn't stay there forever without catching up on her rent. By July 2001, so less than a year after Zachary went missing, Leah had moved out of state, and she was no longer participating in the investigation. She was living with a man, she was using his last name, but her family said at the time that they weren't actually married. It's my understanding that at some point they did marry, or she married someone else. Leah also didn't participate in the disappeared episode, which was pretty favorable towards her. And when there are missing child awareness events in Florida, Zach's grandmother and aunt go to represent his case, not Leah. But I can't really point that out without also saying she had been very cooperative. She told her story over and over and over again, and it stayed consistent. She says she took a polygraph, though she doesn't know the results, and the police have not confirmed that she even took one. After months and months of cooperation, she did stop answering the same questions all over again. She didn't want to sit down for interviews, and she definitely was not interested in talking with the media. And the question only Leah can answer is, did she pull away from the case because she was guilty of something? Or was she pulling away from the case because she had nothing more to add and it was damaging her mental health to stay involved? Her family has said she would be called a murderer when out in public, which explains why she would want to move away. People were treating her differently because the general consensus was that she had something to do with this. That's a heavy burden for someone to bear if they're innocent or if they're guilty. The case eventually began to fade from the headlines after the full coverage of the first few months. The police were, of course, still working this as an open and active investigation. When a local business posted a reward for information, a bunch more tips came in, which kept investigators busy. One notable tip came in in the spring of 2001. We're talking six or seven months after Zachary disappeared. It was a police informant who knew of a man, 42-year-old Kevin Jalbert, who told stories, bragging, really, about abducting children. This informant claimed that Jalbert was not a lone wolf pedophile who boasted about doing dark things. He liked to work with others in pedophile rings. So police sent an undercover in to befriend Jalbert. It didn't take long before Jalbert was boasting to the undercover. He said he had kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and killed boys. He said he got away with it because he used bleach to get rid of DNA evidence on their bodies, and the undercover did notice that Jalbert rode around with bleach and a funnel in his car. One time, Jalbert was driving around with the undercover and talking about his crimes, as well as trying to talk the undercover into kidnapping someone for him. As they drove up to the Savannah Trace apartments, Jalbert pointed at one of the apartments and said he took his last victim from there. He also described what the victim was wearing. But it's unlikely Jalbert meant Zachary. I mean, he did mean Zachary, but he was lying. He was leveraging this high-profile case in his bragging but he probably didn't know anything except what he saw on the evening news. He pointed to the wrong apartment entirely, and he described the clothing Zachary wore to bed wrong, 
But Jalbert had done enough other things. On June 22, 2001, he was arrested for solicitation of murder by trying to get the undercover to join him in his abduction, rape, and murder plan. Investigators searched his van and his home, as well as his mother's home and her car. In Jalbert's vehicle, they found the bleach, like the undercover said, and they also found a receipt for a landfill in his glove box. It showed that two weeks after Zachary went missing, Jalbert had dumped something. While interviewing Jalbert's mother, she insisted her son was innocent and, quote, a saint. Police showed her a picture of Zachary and she did not recognize him. Jalbert's mother told the media that the police were very interested in her car, but she was able to prove it was out of state when Zach went missing. She had a receipt for an oil change she had done in Massachusetts. But Jalbert's mother also provided Jalbert with an alibi, saying he was at his home the weekend Zachary went missing. But if she was in Massachusetts getting oil changes, how does she know where he was in the dead of the night in Florida? Sometimes I've seen it said that Jalbert lived near the apartment, so being alibied at his home doesn't really help him. But from what I've seen, he did not live near the apartments, but he had a friend who did. The police brought the information about Jalbert and pictures of him to Zach's family. Maybe he was lurking around. Maybe he was some creepy guy in the parking lot watching the kids play. But no one recognized him, and this is pretty important. Because like I said before, stranger kidnappings from inside the home are incredibly rare. But what if Leah met Jalbert at a friend's house, at a bar, while she was at work? That might be all he needed to know that she had a son at home. But he would have also had to have known she left the apartment that night to know when to strike. Jalbert was a long shot, but he did brag vaguely about being involved in the case, so he was investigated thoroughly. There are reports that they compared his DNA to DNA found at the scene, and it was not a match. For most of us, we can hear the brakes screech in our minds when we hear that line, and we rewind a bit. What DNA? What DNA are they talking about? This is the first we hear that DNA was found at the scene at all. So where did it come from? My guess is they just swabbed everywhere and found male DNA possibly even more than one male. But they don't know that it belongs to the kidnapper. It could be a maintenance man, a landlord, a male visitor. So they aren't actively searching for the contributor, but they are running suspects against it. That's my guess, because the police are not saying. But it's possible they do have something more significant and more of a smoking gun telling them that this is likely the abductor's DNA. But I would like to think that if they had that, they would say something to the press, saying they had evidence indicating third-party involvement, even if they don't say what the evidence is. Just something, because otherwise it's being left out there that they're suspicious of Leah. But it's always possible, and in my opinion, likely, that they don't know if the DNA is significant or not. Anyway. There's nothing to definitively link Jalbert to Zachary, Jalbert to the home. He claimed all of his talk about sexually assaulting and murdering boys was fantasy and that he hadn't abducted anyone, hurt anyone, and he certainly never killed anyone. But he was a pedophile. I'm sure no one is surprised to hear child pornography was found on his computer and not just stuff he downloaded. According to his little write-up on Florida's sex offender website, he was convicted of possession of child porn, but also kidnapping with attempt to commit or facilitate a felony, production of child porn, and sexual battery against a victim under the age of 12. So, so much for not hurting anyone. Jalbert was given 40 years in prison, and if he serves the full time like we all hope he will, he will be released in 2036 at the age of 77. We know in the months before his arrest, he was driving around with the bleach on hand that he said would destroy DNA, and he was actively trying to find someone who would commit the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a child with him. If he hadn't killed anyone yet, I think he was about to. 
regardless of his involvement or not involvement in Zachary Bernhardt's case, this is a win to get this man off the streets. So the next major development in the case that really went nowhere came in August 2001 from Dillon, Colorado, which is west of Denver. Someone found a picture on the ground in a parking lot. The picture is disturbing. It is like the picture in the Tara Calico case, if you're familiar with that one. This picture shows a young blonde-haired boy bound and possibly with some bruising. It's really hard to see the boy's face because he is lying down and the picture shows the top of his head in the foreground. So you can't even see his whole face. The ground around him is pine needles on top of dirt. The Dillon police took the photo and blasted it to police stations nationwide. Those pine needles in the picture were not from that area. So they know that this picture was taken somewhere else. This may be a missing child from somewhere else. The picture made it to Clearwater, Florida, and it roughly matched Zachary's description. So they called Zachary's grandmother Carol in and his aunt Bobby Joe. They wanted them to look at the picture. They prepped them the best they could about what they were about to see. The picture is not graphic, but it is disturbing. So when they first saw it, they had a reaction to it. They saw this little boy and he's tied up and it's, it's upsetting. So first they thought this might be Zachary. But once they got over that initial reaction, they looked closer and they didn't think it looked like him. It can't be completely ruled out. Weird angles in photographs can make people look almost unrecognizable. This photograph has been enhanced. Police around the country are very interested in finding out who this little boy is. But it was in a somewhat water-damaged condition when they found it. So there's a lot about the photo that just isn't very helpful. Who knows if it is authentic or if it's a hoax, like some believe the Terra Calico photo was. So this brings us to the one-year anniversary of Zachary going missing. Anniversaries are the best time to get the media reinterested in a case. I spoke with the head of the Kansas City Crime Stoppers for another case. He told me that he sends press releases leading up to the anniversaries for the cases they have rewards for. A certain amount of cold case advocacy really is public and media relations. So the family decided to get the media interested, they were going to hold a candlelight vigil on the one-year anniversary. They're inviting all the press in the area to the event. And it was scheduled for the day Zachary went missing, September 11th. So September 11th, 2001, they have a candlelight vigil planned. And of course, that morning, terrorists hijacked four planes and killed nearly 3,000 people. This anniversary vigil that would have probably been above the fold front page news, at least in the area, it ended up being buried underneath the news of the terrorist attacks. But Zachary's case would get back in the media a few months later when on December 31st, 2001, a little boy was kidnapped from the same apartment complex. This little boy is now an adult and he deserves his privacy. So I'm going to call him Michael rather than his real name. He was five years old and playing outside the Savannah Trace apartments with his cousins who were six and eight. A man driving a white pickup truck with ice cream cone decals on it pulled up around 6 p.m. The truck may have also had a Stone Cold Steve Austin sticker. The man in the truck was a white male, average height, thin, with shoulder-length dark hair, and he told the boys he had ice cream. The two older boys ignored him, but Michael went over to his truck. Because the two witnesses to the abduction were children, there is some discrepancy in what exactly happened. One kid said the man grabbed Michael. The other said he wasn't forced to get in the truck. He got in voluntarily. One of them said they were in the parking lot when Michael was lured away. The other said they were on the playground. But those are fairly minor details. Since this was a kidnapping, no matter the exact scenario, 
the police were called in, and a search began. The way the Disappeared episode portrays what happened next is not how the media at the time reported it. So I'm going with the media at the time because they had interviewed those involved. So a man was driving toward a Waffle House in Bushnell, Florida, around 4.30 in the morning. This is an hour and a half, two hours away from the apartments, and it's on New Year's Day. So Michael had been missing for not quite 11 hours. As the man passed a KFC restaurant, he saw a shadow out of the corner of his eye that he thought was actually a dog. But then he heard yelling because it was Michael. He was screaming for help. So the man turned his car around and went back to Michael, who was crying. Michael said that a man had kidnapped him and had left him. It was either in a dumpster or a large trash can, and he had climbed out. It's believed he may have been dumped hours before he was actually able to get out and safe. Michael had no coat on and he was shivering, so the man put him in his car and drove him to the Waffle House where he called police. A friend of his gave Michael his coat and the man bought him some hot cocoa to warm up while they waited for investigators to get there. The motorist said that Michael seemed uninjured, though he said his abductor had slapped him. Michael's mother said to the media in a message to the man who had taken her son that they would find him and he knew what he did to Michael, which leads many to believe Michael had been sexually assaulted, which is another good reason for me not to use his real name. Michael was checked out medically and then reunited with his very, very, very relieved family. The man who took Michael was never identified. Jalbert had already been arrested, so we know it's not him. But because Michael and Zachary went missing from the same complex 15 months apart, you can't help but wonder if this was a repeat. That's what we saw with the Brianna Dennison case. Her killer stalked the same area for all of his attacks. Was this similar? The official verdict here is that police don't rule anything out, but they don't believe the cases are connected. Like most stranger abductions, this one happened outside. It's a lot different to talk a kid into getting near your vehicle so you can grab them than it is to go into their house, go up the stairs, and take them out of their bed completely undetected. So this is the last major development that got Zachary's case in the media. His grandmother and his aunt, though, have done everything else. They get that anniversary coverage. They go to the missing children events so Zachary gets profiled. They sat with Disappeared and laid it all out there. Zachary's case is still in the media because of them. Age progressions have been done every few years, and the most recent one was of Zachary as a 23-year-old man. I watched the series of age progressions flash on the screen in the Disappeared episode, and I found them very upsetting. I find age progressions pretty upsetting in general, because most of the people portrayed in these, usually kids, are being shown at ages they never reached. I mean, they're so important in these cases in case the child is alive somewhere, and I get that, I understand their role, I'm glad we have them, but they're still sad. And it wasn't until I saw a series of them in a slideshow like that did it occur to me that some families have watched their missing children grow up through these renderings every few years. They aren't one and done. They keep doing them. And this is how these families are watching the children, quote unquote, grow up. As I was thinking this and thinking how additionally upsetting that must be, disappeared, cut to the interviews with Zachary's aunt and grandmother who confirmed exactly what I was thinking, how very, very hard those age progressions were to see. So what happened here? What happened to Zachary? Let's talk about the theories. We're just going to go ahead and cross out stranger abduction from inside the apartment. That's so unlikely that someone who didn't know the family grabbed an eight-year-old he somehow knew was in the apartment and knew was alone. This person would have had to get in, go up the stairs, get Zachary, get him down the stairs, out the door, likely to a waiting vehicle without anyone noticing. Yes, Brianna Dennison was taken by a stranger, 
but it was believed he saw her from a window outside the home. That wouldn't have been the case here. If it was a stranger kidnapping, it likely happened outside of the apartment. Maybe Zachary did wake up, see his mother was gone, and go to try to find her. Maybe he was headed to the neighbor's apartment because he was scared and someone saw him and grabbed him. The odds that kind of person was there at that exact time is remote, but that's how opportunistic attacks happen. What were the odds that man in the truck drove by when Michael was out playing with his cousins? We know Jalbert, through his admissions to the undercover, drove around assessing his opportunities to grab kids. And unfortunately, he's not the only person like him out there. So another option is it was someone in the complex. If Zachary was scared, possibly crying outside, a seemingly kind neighbor could have lured him inside. It seems impossible if Leah's timeline is correct. She left at 4, was back at 4.15, and called the police around 4.45. Police were all over that complex for days. It would have been incredibly difficult for someone to have kept Zachary hidden that close to the police for that long. However, if Leah's timeline is inaccurate, he may have had more time. According to neighbor reports, Leah may have been gone longer than 45 minutes, and she may have been gone earlier in the morning than she said. This would have given someone hours rather than minutes to act. And of course, Leah's involvement cannot be ruled out. Police believe she hasn't told them everything. Her family, though, is split, and it's honestly so sad because some of the older siblings can hardly speak to each other because some think Leah was involved and others say no way. While families don't have to agree on everything, this is a massive thing to disagree on. Whether or not you think your sister killed her son, a child that you love and adore. For me, there's no doubt in my mind that Leah loved Zachary. So my mind starts to wander into, was this an accident? And Leah panicked. Was Leah gone longer than she said and came home to something? But my question is, what? It would have had to been something that didn't leave much evidence behind. And Zachary was eight years old, so it's not likely that he drank a cleaner under the sink or ingested some stash of drugs he found. I mean, we have the popular Casey Anthony theory that Leah wanted to go out to party and she overdosed Zach on something to make him sleep. But even that doesn't necessarily ring true because he was eight years old, not two. It's a lot harder to accidentally overdose someone that big. I don't know what this one. I don't think it was a stranger in the sense of someone entering the house. But if Zachary left on foot to look for his mom, something could have happened. The only other theory that seems plausible to a lot of people is that he wandered off looking for his mother and got lost. If she was gone longer than 15 minutes, he could have made it some distance. But again, his age. He was nearing nine years old. He knew people in the apartment complex. He knew how to dial a phone. I'm sure he could call his grandmother. My kids do things that defy logic daily. But going out on foot in the dark to look for his mom when he had other options, like knocking on a neighbor's door, that just doesn't sound quite right to me. I just think he's too old for the accidentally wandered off or accidentally ingested something or was accidentally overdosed. He's just, in my opinion, too old for those to be likely. Not impossible. Until we know what happened to Zachary, nothing can be ruled out. And there's always hope in cases like this. Sean Hornbeck was found alive. JC Dugard was found alive. Stephen Stainer was found alive. Elizabeth Smart. Zachary was just a little bit older than Stephen Stainer. And Stephen very famously remembered his first name. And Zach was a little bit younger than Sean Hornbeck, who, when he was found, he remembered his full name. So it's very likely that if Zachary was found now, he remembers his original name. He remembers something about his family of origin. He may even remember his last name. If alive today, Zachary would be 26 years old. According to NamUs, Zachary Michael Cole Bernhardt has blonde hair and blue eyes. Zachary also has scars under his chin, on the right side of his top lip, and on the bridge of his nose. If you have any information, please call the Clearwater Police Department at 
1-800-627-562-4422 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. These phone numbers will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 